You're listening to the Mobcast Network. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> X-Men was better anyway. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Bruce and I were better. We grew up in the, we got in the business at the same time, so we both started at Filmation, so uh, kind of had a light rivalry. I mean, we, we, I did work with him on Batman. I did several episodes with uh, Bruce Tim. So I got a, got a chance to play with Batman in addition to the X-Men. And it's it kind of funny to what questions, yeah, questions, and answers we get, but they kind of blew fire on the rest. They, they started about a year earlier developing it, and so they had a lot of stuff. That's how Larry was able to do a bunch of storyboards for them before we actually even started on the X-Men. And we saw how beautiful uh, their, their art was. People said, oh my God, we can't compete with that. So, okay, we're going to crank up the pace here, the drama, and the production people literally made a decision. Batman has so many shots of scenes in a 22-minute episode. We're going to do about 75% more, almost double. So that's why when you watch the pace of Batman, Batman is something people look at, but it's kind of slow, as our executives call it. Slow jazz. We were a garage band. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that was it's a creative decision uh, prompted by the fact that we knew we'd be next to each other, that we'd be siblings, and we wanted to stick with ourselves and go to our strengths. Yeah. Well, we're going to go ahead and get this thing started. Before we do jump into the panel, I want to let you guys know that the reason why these things exist is so that you have an opportunity to talk with these filmmakers and the people responsible for all of these projects that we love. So as we get this thing started, y'all take an opportunity to come up with some really good questions. I'm sure they've got all sorts of insight that they would love to share with you guys. Obviously, the, the exit would be the entrance where you guys came in. If anybody needs to step out, the restrooms are going to be immediate right. And then again, another right. It'll take you straight to them. If you need to answer your cell phones or anything, just please be considerate. And when you step out, try to be discreet uh, and make sure your cell phone ringers are turned off. And the, basically, the way that this is going to go is we've got a special surprise for you guys when we get started. And then... I'm going to just kind of talk with them for a couple of minutes and turn this over to you guys for an opportunity to ask questions. We got any uh, 90s kids in the house? Me too. Do we have any X-Men fans in the house? Then you're in the right place. Okay. Hope that everybody's enjoying your Pensacon so far. Is there anybody this is your first year here? Welcome. Glad to have you. Hope you're enjoying yourselves. Amazing food so far. Oh, yeah. Cold, by the way. Yeah. 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 Right. Oh, we made it to Fish House last night. Oh, yeah. Just the Harry Potter theme was spectacular. Yeah. But the food was The food was excellent. Good. Yeah. yeah, that Gulf seafood. Yes. It doesn't uh, get much better. Yes. Nice and fresh. All 
her, you know, the network didn't, both sides didn't, didn't believe in each other. They said, we're doing this and, and we'll lay our jobs on the line for it. First thing they did was they hired their uh, creative arts staff, which is real name of an old friend of Larry's and Larry. So those two guys are responsible for how the show looks and feels and all the, just, just the fact that there's never been anything more like a comic book. You know, these comic book guys made it, made it real. And we were all old uh, comic book fanboys. Right. <laughs> and on the writing side, uh, Margaret and Sydney hired me and a college buddy of mine from, from Knoxville, uh, Mark Edens. And we were, we, we worked with them a couple, couple other shows, and so they decided we were like heroic storytelling. We might fit better than other people. Because to be honest, we didn't know, we didn't know the excellent part of We had to learn it fast. But like, I think we just like the way we tell stories. Well, after no, nobody believing in the show and us being, hired, being let go when we were done with our work because they thought it would only run one season, lo and behold, it became the biggest hit in kids' TV and, and took uh, uh, spots from being a distant fourth network to the number one network in six weeks. Yeah. And just stayed that way and played all over the world. It's so weird. Everywhere we go, every, we were just in Singapore, and the Malaysian TSA agents came up to us and said, X10, X10. <laughs> Everybody knows the show, and that we give credit to the cops for getting it out there, but we also feel like we're part of something special. And personally, we feel a great deal. You know, why did it work? Well, this guy, Len Wein, who's a dear friend of ours, and who wrote for five of the episodes, uh, he gave the X Men Rebirth, if you all know the history. It played in the 60s, it didn't do it so well. It was a bunch of uh, teenagers from, basically from New York in blue suits who were new mutants, and so the basic core was set. But that, that failed, and about in 1975, Len, who was the top guy there at Marvel, as far as I was concerned, was asked reinvent them. And so he said, and reinvent them internationally. Because some accountants have found some numbers saying that the old issues were selling overseas. So they said, make, you know, get a Canadian, get a uh, German, <laughs> get a Russian, get a... So the reason it's an international team of us now was that Len Wein was given the direction by an accountant to make them international. The one time, the one time the accountant came So we have that man to thank for the wonderful, you know, storm is for uh, <coughs> Africa. All the incredible range of our cast comes from the fact that that guy made that one statement. And again, why we felt we were, it was successful was we respected the books that the, uh, the stories were coming from, the stories we were referring to, and we think it was part of a tradition that led in, it was a bridge to now the, the, the movies that we all enjoy. And so you can see there's, a, there's one that if you'll notice in the middle drawing there, it doesn't say days of future past, it says future tense. When we were starting to write it, we weren't sure if we were going to be close enough to the story or if Marvel would be comfortable with what our version of it. They ended up being, so we kept the days of future past, but when the storyboard was drawn for Larry, the, the, the working title was future tense. There's Bishop there being you know, a time traveler. The other thing, the reason we think X-Men was so different is that we treated them as adult characters, which they were, and pretty much 
lot of that Saturday morning before that was kind of done down or for for bigger and, and we just said no. Little kids will, will watch up. Uh, older kids and adults won't watch down. We're going to make this about adults, which is what they are. And then there. So there you go. <laughs> this this was a time when Marvel Marvel was very restrictive. They 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 were a small company. They didn't let us use anybody, but the, the X Men that we were used for. And Larry can tell you how we got in trouble trying to use Spider Man and what he did about it. Yeah, there was a time when. One of the things I wanted to do with the show was to add little Easter eggs throughout the series that I knew would be of interest to someone who's a fan of the show. And for me, I would, I would add the Easter eggs only when it didn't interfere with the story that these guys were writing. And so I had a, a scene of, I wanted to put Spider-Man hanging upside down in the building as the X-Men was doing something else. And when I submitted the model through, it uh, got disapproved when I was going, Spider-Man was on the same network, but they wouldn't give me a reason. So I said, okay. The next script I have, I think it was Genosha, where all the mutants had these collars on and stuff. <clears throat> and the writer wrote Mutant 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So I said, okay, cool. I brought my comic books into work. I said, make this the blob, make this Mystique, make this, you know, the pyro of the different characters. But it kept the original names, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. <laughs> Submitted it to, you know, the networks. I didn't hear a word. I went, okay, now I know how to do it. <laughs> and so from that point forward, uh, like you see, that was a Norse mutant for Thor. Uh, I don't know what it, I, I wrote something for Strange. I forgot what it was, but everybody was a mutant. Like even the watch was a uh, mutant on the observer. On the Alien observer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Deadpool's just a, a nightmare image, number four, or something like that. And uh, I got a chance, I did get a, ch oh, I did get a chance to sneak uh, Spider-Man into a shot of um, the Dark Phoenix because the world's coming to an end and I wanted to, I wanted to sneak, I wanted to get him back into the show, so I, so I did a shot of like a, a chimney and you see the shadow of Spider-Man land and then you see his hand go, you know, shooting out the weapon. And it was called Mutant Hand Number Three. And, like, <laughs> and you know, that's how I finally got him into the show. You know, the, the next shot was like a piece of debris, and it saves a lady from being, getting hit. And I added the, uh, I think, Alpha Flight and some um, Iron Man or, or War Machine or something like that. War Machine. So I added all these other cameos into the show to try and, to try and show that the world's come to an end and all of these characters are getting involved. So. Yeah. Black Panther too. Oh yeah, yeah. They had a they had a show called uh, Sanctuary, where Magneto was picking up all these mutants around the world, and he went to Africa to get some other characters. Went, oh okay, cool. I'll just slip in Black Panther as he's landing and taking off, and he's called African <coughs> mutant number three or four or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I got him. That's how I got these uh, cameos into the show, because I. You know, once I figure out how the system works, it's like, okay, I'm not going to ask permission anymore. I'm just going to do it. And, you know, I had a gut feeling as to what was a good show. And just want to keep running with it and, it and give something back to the fans who know the material, that they see a cameo of a character they like. They can, it, it, it generates excitement and interest in the show so that next week you'd be wondering, well, what other characters are going to show up in the middle of the show that you could spot? You know?
And also, if you were watching the show when it first came out uh, and you spotted one of these characters, you couldn't run on the internet and say, oh, was that on the air? Yeah. Like, oh, you had, Wait, did you, did you just see that? You know, unless your family was letting you tape it. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you couldn't even play it back to then go, wait a second, did I just see? So it became you know, quite the buzz among fans who were in the know. Yeah. And then fans who weren't in the know were getting curious who this, who this universe included. It was, when I was growing up watching the shows, I mean, watch, reading the comic books, uh, Marvel Comics had, they were under, the, the distribution was being done by DC Comics. And so Stan only had like eight or ten ti eight titles he could put books out on because DC was keeping it, keeping it a lot down. And so Stan, in order to cross promote the characters, you'd be watching um, Spider-Man and then you'd have a panel of Thor go through the scene. And the, at the bottom would be, if you want to see where Thor is going, pick up issues such and such. You know? And so he was basically using something like to cross promote the books to try and get more sales. But what he accidentally created was the connected universe that we all know. And so for me, that generated excitement for me when I was a kid. And so I just kept that tradition one and I put it into the X-Men. And so just finally, this is the last slide on this one. Just, we really think that in the end, uh, this, this is everybody that loves Charles Xavier watching him go off to space as he's dying. Uh, that it was just a family, a dysfunctional and warring family, but that really had each other's backs and really loved each other. That had a challenge each week, and that that's why this the show uh, survives so well because you know the show's about loners and they they work fine, but there was just something about all these people being thrown together and having to acknowledge that they were all part of something larger that we, we think is very special. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, if, if you haven't heard already, if you haven't seen the books up here, we do have a, about a year ago, I finished the book, I interviewed Larry and like eight or nine artists, a dozen writers, the whole cast, uh, executives, uh, production people, and wrote a history of uh, the show. And so if you, if you like some of the stories we're telling here, there are hundreds of them in the book, yeah. uh, and and uh, there's images from all from all the storyboards and comments on every episode. And so we're we're down at uh, on the third floor. If you all haven't been by yet, and we got we got plenty of them. Yeah. As we wrap up here, that's where we're going to be heading in after this. I think we're at uh, 08, and you're at 07. We're Is that so? North on North. We're Artist Alley North. Is our, that's what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> but the the one thing that it's in the book that you should know about is that there were several, and he, he, he cataloged it, because he, I remember pieces, and he, other people remember pieces of, of the beginning, but there were like three or four times in just the genesis of the series before you guys saw anything, that we had all these creative battles that almost killed the show before you guys even saw, you know, one foot of film, that we had to fight to make sure the show was um, consistent with the, with the vision that we were trying to put forth. And so um, we had to fight for all the stuff that you guys saw. But once we had the first season and it was successful, they all backed off. <laughs> Success yeah. does that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there's like six, there are six or seven major crises in the book. Any one of them would just put a something to show. Yeah. And, you know, like either, say, Scooby Doo's Voices, which was a choice, or, or changing the design completely, or changing the stories so that they were younger and less dramatic. And there are fights that we have with people telling us, well, you've got to do this, and if you don't, we're going to fire you. 
type stuff and he, us looking at each other and saying, no, we can't back down this time. No. Anyway, <coughs> before we get to our dear host here, there's a fun thing we do. Uh, I thought it might have like to have a look at what the cast looks like. We've got lots of cast photos in the book. And because you've just grown to love these people and the voices and their, how they're drawn. But it is fun to see. And I think that an awful lot of them look an awful lot like their characters. So here we go. We're going to go through about a, a, a dozen other characters. And what I'd like you to do is, is clap for your favorites. Don't clap for ones you don't like. And then we'll decide which, which character won at the end. But clap for your favorite. Everybody's got favorite X-Men, so clap for your favorites. To start off, period, this is Cal Dodd, our Wolverine. He is handing the first copy of the book to Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, who is a super comic speak. Yeah. And uh, since all, all the cast was Canadian, we uh, we called his office and he said, yes, I want the first copy of the book. So Wolverine and Jubilee took it up to me. I didn't get to go, not that I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now let's clap for our favorite exit. We'll start off with Norm Spencer as Cyclops. As Cyclops. Catherine Disher as Jean Grey. <laughs> Allison Celia Smith as Storm. <laughs> George Busa as Beast. <laughs> Chris Potter as Gandalf. <laughs> Allison Court as Jubilee. As Jubilee. <laughs> Ron Rubin is Morph. <laughs> Cedric Smith is Professor X. <laughs> Jennifer Dale is Mystique. <laughs> Philip Aiken is B as Bishop. <laughs> Lawrence Bain is Cable. <laughs> that's that's the way, that's what he looks. <laughs> yeah. And Adrian Huff is Nightcrawler. <laughs> Nor Zahn is Rogue. She's a state senator in real life, in, in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And last but not least, Cal Dodd is Wolverine. <laughs> Okay, we're uh, our unofficial tally is, is that 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 Rogue and Wolverine tied. Storm was close. Yeah, Storm was really close. Yes. Yeah, one. Three way tie. Three way tie. Okay. Also, um, just for the fun of it, uh, Norm Spencer, I believe is the thing we all hear in our heads when we hear previously on X-Men. Yeah. That was, yeah, he was the one who did the voice on that. Yeah. Well, very good, you guys. Um, I, I just have a couple of questions just to kind of get us started off, and then I do want to turn it over to you guys. Obviously, if you have any questions, there's not any microphones, so just make sure that you project <coughs> to the point that we can hear you up here. Um, so, as you said, you're not treating this property as if it was written for kids. You, you didn't quote-unquote dumb it down, and I think that is a big reason why it succeeded and continued as, as a lot of these kids aged up. 
Were you aware at the time um, that audiences were of multiple different age groups, or were you concerned about uh, you know the, the people that were viewing it? <coughs> the executive class in Los Angeles is profoundly nervous about, uh, oh, you have to appeal to audiences two to five. Oh, no, no, we're aiming for the six to 11 audience. You know, I mean, they've got it down to just a couple of years, and they are specific about what they want to hit. It was, again, Margaret Lesh and the folks at Fox Kids who were trying to sort of make, trying to get into the uh, network universe, because Fox didn't exist until 1988, I think it was, and Fox Kids, I think 1990, trying to <coughs> elbow their way into ABC, NBC, CBS. And so she was willing to, she was willing to try to appeal to the whole age group. Uh, no, executives do that. <laughs> yeah, the people, the people that pay for it, you know, the, the advertisers and the, the, the people with the, the TV stations all over the country, they were looking at our scripts, at our serious adult scripts, and they were freaking out. And they just thought, oh my God, there goes my, my money for this, <laughs> for this season because you know, there's not going to be anybody under 12 that's going to be able to follow this stuff. It's just confusing. It's too adult and it's too dramatic and intense. And we just wanted to shake all those people and say, do you not remember being seven years old? Do you not remember how you wanted something exciting and dramatic and intense and that if your older brother or sister was watching something and loving it, you were you were inspired by that or intrigued by that? Whereas if it was something that you thought was way too young for you, you weren't going to bother. So we just kept thinking, we're going to write this for adults, for ourselves, but for kids that want a challenging story that they can aspire to and realize maybe when they're older that they only got half of it the first time they watched it, but that half is good enough. And uh, that, it, it obviously worked, because we would, we would get the, the, we'd get the ratings, and, you know, two to five, six to 11, all the way through adult, everybody was watching it. And that was, it shocked our bosses and Gratified us, and we yes. said, "See how right we are." <laughs> and that lasted for about three or four years, and then everybody forgot that it was successful, and we went back to the normal way of doing business. Before. Yeah. But but for the short time, we got to crow and say, "Yeah, we've got this figured out, right? Have a look at next time." Yeah. Would you say that was at the time of the second season that you guys had a lot more freedom to do the oh, things yeah. that you wanted? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So we weren't fighting over. We weren't fighting over anything. <coughs> People really stepped back and stopped saying, Oh, you can't do that, you can't do that. Then it got turned around to what, what can you try to <laughs> But if yeah. I can jump in on that point, the first season, Eric and Larry and all of us here, uh, you were hired, anyone who was working on the show was hired for 13 episodes because they assumed it was going to crash and burn. Yeah. No one was signed on to participate any longer. So when you and Mark Lincoln sat down to, to craft out, the 13 stories that were going to be the X-Men series. You two came up with the strategy, well, comic books tell stories over a period of time. But not every comic book is a self-contained story. So can we tell broader stories over a longer period of time by having the episodes you know, carry on a longer arc? And there was profound blowback, on, pushback on that, because the kids aren't going to remember what happened last week. It's, it's too confusing. <laughs> Yeah. But you guys were insistent on that. Yeah, and Will really put his foot down. Uh, he's, again, the fourth, of, the fourth of our team of four that were basically primarily on the show creatively. And he said, comic books do this. Tell, 
really good television shows do this. They, they continue, have continuing stories. We need to be able to do this. And so, to Margaret Lesh's credit, she said, we'll give it a try. We had teething problems of a number uh, during, during the production of the animation for series, for season. We were supposed to premiere in September, but Margaret said, we're not going to put this on here until it's bright. So she delayed four months, and we didn't, we didn't properly premiere until January. And that, that was kind of weird. So like, that's one of the reasons they don't like to do animated shows uh, one after the other, because if number three isn't right, it doesn't matter if four, five, and six are good. You can't show four, five, and six, because three isn't ready yet. And that's, that's why there's hesitation to that, and why so few shows, animated shows do it. But we fought for it for the first couple seasons. But, yeah. but to your point, Jeremy, after the first season and the success of it, um, I think you guys got marching orders, no more series-long arcs, season-long arcs. We just can't do it. There's too many complications if something doesn't come back in right, in right time to play for the next thing. So, but we didn't want to hear that. So, <laughs> yeah, so we happy. We'll do two parties, and we'll do four or five parties, like this, the Phoenix Sagas. And what we did on the second season, we had that little thing, if you, you all remember, with Xavier and Magneto in the uh, Savage Land lost. So we have a two-parter to start the season, then we have nine episodes where we have a completely different story going on with Beast or someone, and we cut back for a minute to see how Professor Xavier and Magneto were, were getting along. And they let us do that, because that was easy to, to get a picture that that was okay. So they let us do that, and that kind of connected right. the 13. So you had a two-parter that set up why they were gone, they had gone for nine, and then you have a two-parter resolved getting them back. So again, it's kind of like a, a full 13 story. Yeah, and and the one thing I want to add was that um, when we were doing the first season, was that um, we weren't getting the quality that we wanted to get for the Back then, the shows, all the new shows came out in September, and we weren't getting the quality we wanted to get. And Margaret you know, stood her ground and said, look, we're gonna have, we want a good show, we want all the retakes to be put into the show. And she pushed the show way back to January. But at the same time, it was like at a cost because I think they had a lot of advertisers they had to rebate money to. It was thousands of dollars that she had to, you know, her, her uh, she had to take the burden of, of those charges and, and, and uh, penalties and stuff. But Margaret was my boss way back in the mid 80s when we, she believed in the show, and we did the we did a pilot call prior to the X Men. Yeah, yeah, that's something I've never looked at. Uh, yeah, it was one of those things where the the person with the the the, the person that was backing the pilot wanted these. He said, you know, Crocodile Dundee is cool. Can't you make Wolverine Australia? And I'm just shaking my head going, you know, if we can just get a series out of this, we'll change them back. We'll just get rid of that Australian stuff, you know. You're just uh, predicting Hugh Jackman. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but she believed in the show way back in, in, in those days, but we couldn't sell it. And so fast forward, when she became the head of Fox Kids, she gave Will a call, gave me a call, gave the Lee Walls a call, and we, we all said, okay, we're going to get the show on the air. And she's the main reason that it was greenlit. You know, we have, if you, without her, you would have never seen the X-Men because she had the power to say, yes, we're putting it on the air. She was really the, the hero behind all of this. But you mentioned that, too, that September is rolling around <coughs> and, and 
Batman is going to be you know, premiering at that point and all the other shows on Fox Kids, and X-Men's just not going to be ready. Uh, the first four episodes, uh, one, two, and four were, were acceptable after a lot of retakes, but three was a complete yeah. animation disaster. Yeah. So Lemons Out of Lemonade, or reverse that, Lemonade's Out of Lemon, said, okay, we will do a sneak peek for the kids and we'll sell a card of the pilot and the two-part pilot, and then come January, well, hey, we're rolling out a brand new series when everybody else was in reruns. Yeah. And somehow that, that struggle. Beautifully. And, and so uh, it was Halloween, and we thought, oh no, it's Halloween at 7 p.m. on But enough people watched it that it was deemed a success. And then enough buzz started happening around the country in the Fox Kids Club that they begged to have it back on, so they showed it again over Thanksgiving, the pilot, as, 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 as a little sneak. And we, we have, we've, we've done a bunch of podcasts and talked to a bunch of fans, and there's this guy that says, you know, I was really bitter. I watched, I watched the pilot in October, I watched the pilot in November, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm counting the days and crossing them off my calendar for, to see the next X-Men episode in, when it premiered in January. And so what does he see when he turns it on that Saturday morning? It's the same <laughs> one again. He was, he was angry that they, with the, with they replayed the pilot a third time. <laughs> I am going to go ahead and turn this over to the audience for questions. I selfishly want to just keep talking to you guys about it. I want to propose a question and I'm going to give you guys a minute to think about it while they're asking theirs. And take this how you want, but if you were a mutant from X-Men, from the Brotherhood, anybody that was featured in the show, which mutant would you be? And now that you've got that in your mind to stew on, I'm going to turn it over to you guys for some questions. Yes, in the back. That's you. Go off. Yeah. Uh, okay. um, was there a particular story arc or controversial topic that either you personally or you versus admin had the most difficulty with? That actually made it onto the air? Because <laughs> there were a couple things that didn't make it on the air, but. Uh, uh, I mean, there's one, just a real quick one that 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 was kind of self-censored. Um, after the first season, if you'll remember, uh, uh, Gene and Scott have said they're going to get married because I love them. <coughs> married, so we're going to start out the second season. They're married, and when Mark and I sat down to lay out the next 13 episodes, we had it be. We thought, okay, they're married and. Jean's seven and a half months pregnant, she's got a huge baby bump, and they're still running around fighting supervillains. And, and, and then we're going to see a double mutant child, maybe, you know, the third episode in, and find out what happened with that. And we got these notes back from, stuff, every, from Marvel, from, from, from every one of the people involved saying, now wait a minute. Remember, I mean, I know everybody's watching the show, but Quark is, you know, core audience are, are 12, 13 year old boys. Gene, seven and a half months pregnant, running around fighting supervillains. It may not be our, our best choice. In yeah. spandex. In spandex, yeah. And so, so we pulled that back. They ended up using them getting married and having a new child later in the books, but that was about the only thing I remember pulling back. Usually, usually they let us uh, do pretty much anything we wanted, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, we had an episode with, I think, a uh, religious episode with uh, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, and yeah. Yeah, it was really, they, they allowed us to push the envelope and the only restriction I had was like the placement of religious symbols. Other than that, we could just go do whatever we wanted. 
I don't know if we could do that today. I've got to be honest. Yeah. It was a serious conversation about religion. It was not uh, trying to uh, convert people. It was a conversation about the philosophy of it. And I don't think you could do that today. Yeah, it ends up with world revealing in a church. You can't, I mean, we would get in so much trouble for that. And it just, it, it came to me because I just opened up, okay, we're, I'd like to see Nightcrawler, we haven't used him. What's his core? Well, he's, he's, he's devout Christian. Well, okay. Uh, well then, if we have him as a, as a guest, we don't want him just flopping around and poofing and shooting at people and then not bring that up. We want that to be the core of the story. Right. And, and I thought, okay, well, who would be the person with the most gripes against the sweet-natured, devout Christian? That would be Wolverine's lived for a hundred years, he's world-weary, he's seen too many nasty things in his life, and he couldn't be bitter about stuff, so I had them going at each other. <coughs> And and that and when we first started doing the story, we were kind of tentative about how far we were pushing the God stuff with him. And we got an open doubt from the from the, the network who are usually sense you know, more sensors. And the note was, Oh no, you gotta go further than this. Get rid of some of this action you've got. Make them talk about God more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but to the credit of the story, uh, that one did not get any kind of uh, mail from irate family members. We know it didn't. We, didn't, we were worried. We thought we'd get some symbols. But I think we just, everybody involved treated it with respect. And so there was, <coughs> there, I don't think there's any sense of irreverence in it whatsoever. No, no and I'm not particularly a religious person, but that really is a powerful episode. That's one of the favorites from the series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, sir, back there with the hat on. Um, yeah. What kind of decisions make went into like choosing which X-Men was to be like the regular cast, then not into like the ones that were like, you know, like Nightcrawler was a guest star and Colossus was a guest star. And like, and also, sorry, I have a second question. If I was like more like invented and included in. I can answer the more question really quick because uh, back when, in the, if you remember the books, you know, the character that did die in the beginning was a character called. Uh, she was, it was an Indian character. Thunderbird. Uh, Thunderbird, right. And so um, we were going to try and replicate that in, in the books, in the, in the TV show. But now you think about it, we're going to create the first Native American superhero and kill him off in the first episode. It's like, not a good idea. So we went back, we went back and researched, and there's a character called Changeling that was in the issue 40 or 50, somewhere back there, where he was invented for one episode. I'm sorry, one issue, and he was killed off. So I stylized the, the visual after after him, and we couldn't use the name Changeling because that was a character in the Teen Titans, so it became Morph. You know, that's where the name came from. And that was, Eric, for you, uh, essential in setting up the role of the X-Men was, was showing the stakes were real. Yeah, yeah our very first major battle with uh, the, our censor, who was a wonderful woman and let us do all sorts of things, it was just thoughtful, the most thoughtful sensor you could ever ask. But our first one was, I just broke a look, we have to show there are stakes involved in this. They're not playing it despite it, you know, uh, yet. And so we need to kill, we need to kill an X-Men the first episode. And so that's why, it's going to be Thunder, in the first draft it was Thunderbird, then it was Changeling, then it became Morph. But in any case, the whole purpose of that was, and you say, look, as long as you don't, make a spectacle out of it as long and as it does. It's going to be about the grief of the rest of them. It's not going to be about him. And if you notice, he's killed off screen. That was a parade. So we couldn't show him actually get hit by the set. He's off screen. 
he's dead. And the, the second episode is basically the rest of the team coming to grips with that. And she let us do that, and that was that was that was huge. Yeah, let, and and having Wolverine punch Cyclops for real and not take him to his knees. That, we had to fight for that. Yeah, that was the only time we ever have one of our guys punch another one of our guys, and it was because he was in such grief, and she understood that. But he had two questions. There was Morph and there was... Yeah, the other one was, like, how did y'all choose, like, the oh, which answer you know, to choose? Real, real quick, there was a bunch of people I had input in that in the first meeting. Marvel was there. Production company people were there. You know, what, what, you know, who can we draw? Marvel uh, was saying, you know, who do we want to promote now? Like, people like Jubilee and Gambit and, uh, and Rogue were fairly popular at the time where they hadn't been five years earlier. So certain people were put forward. And on the writing side, we're listening to all this and we've got all their suggestions. And it's interesting to look in the story in, in, of the documents that's it's in the book, where we started out with a certain group of people that everyone could agree on. And then gradually, as we wrote, uh, Beast was not one of them. Jean Grey was not necessarily one of the key uh, uh, Right. Professor, X. Professor X was going to be kind of in the background. It gives you an idea of people that weren't thought of that first day. All oh, these are these are simple <laughs> stories. As we wrote the first thirteen stories, I and the writers found well, we couldn't really tell the stories without Professor X. And there's something about Jean Grey where she's emotionally central to, the, to the, everybody. Everybody has a relationship with her in a way that they have with nobody else. So she was becoming larger in the stories. And then Beast, we put him in jail, like in the second or third episode. Because yeah. we just thought he was going to be in two, two or three episodes of First 13, and he was going to be minor. But every writer that was writing said, oh man, can't can, can we put him in something else? He, he, yeah. he asserted himself. Beast's character made us use him and made us make him into a central, uh, central character. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to, I'm um, sure somebody probably mentioned or whatever, but I just want to say thank you for just my Saturday mornings, my DVD collection. I'm saying that as being a young African-American male and not seeing a lot of white heroes that look like me, being to see characters like Storm and Bishop and others being used and not being, not looking like Flake, Right. Like having real, that real character, and yeah. having powers that made you respect that they were superheroes. Like yeah. Storm was a team leader of X Men, and you showcased mm -hmm. levels where she was a strong character, not just a sidekick. That was one of the problems I had with Fox movies, to be honest. <laughs> oh yeah. Because she, she, she was a team leader. So right. my question to you guys is like, I mean, and I love the writing. The writing was just phenomenal. Um. As you, as you guys said, um, a question about like things that were controversial. Did you ever get any flack about characters in terms of like you just mentioned about Native American and right. that go back with them? But what about additional characters? Jubilee, Chinese American, and then you had um, Thunderbird, and then you got Storm, who was African, and all that. So was there any more additional info about like having more diverse characters? And I think at the time we just we were going for all the we weren't basing it upon any racial quota. We were just going with the best characters for the for the episodes and, and the most distinct characters, ones that yeah. are most different from each other. Because yeah. Gambit is nothing like uh, like uh, it was all about character. Nothing like Wolverine, yeah. and, he, and Wolverine is nothing like Scott. And right. we didn't like, like we make a joke. Well, we could have put had. 
Colossus, Wolverine, Cable, Bishop. Uh, it, we'd have like six big, rough, tough guys as the team. And it would, you couldn't have told stories with those people because they're all way too similar. Right. So we wanted the most diverse, not, not even necessarily racially, worked out racially. And, and, and right, you, get, you yeah. have a Russian, you have yeah. Chinese, Chinese guy. Yeah, yeah. So we looking for the most diverse cast we could possibly set so that that makes it easier for us to write stories. Right, and we had very powerful, and then, you know, back in the 90s, we had very powerful female leagues who could kick butt just as well as the men. Right. Everybody were equal. We're equal in the show. And also the ones who struggle the most with, with their, you can see, and their power. And the, yeah. the way that Rogue to me is just a, a tragic character for the ages. All she yeah. wanted was just to be able to touch and love someone. Whereas if she switched powers with Wolverine, she'd have been happy. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and he would have been happy. Yeah. I did notice that somebody in the back over here may have had their hand up a moment ago. Yeah, I was just going to ask Larry, having worked on Pride of the X-Men and X-Men the Animated Series, what was your preference, the belts and pouches or the classic costume? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the classic cost, costumes, and I, it's mainly coming from an animation point of view, because having animating all those damn pouches kills <laughs> an animator. The less lines, the better. All right, we got time for just a couple more. Yes, sir, in the red? Um, basically, the Sentinels. Um, basically, how did you guys come up with them of having an evil group of <coughs> government-funded to try to fight the X-Men themselves? Because, I mean, I understood that they were against mutants, yeah. but still, some of them were powerful enough yeah. to... Take some of that. Yeah, well, there, were, there were two or three really important. We, that, that was actually some a fight we had at Marvel for a short time. Uh, Will Minio, who's the, the, the person here that is most responsible for, he's not here, but for, for, for the way the show went. Anyway, he, he came to us, came to the writer and said, Look, you got to use this for like two or three reasons as our main villain for the first season. Um, and when we did, we got a, some nasty notes from Marvel saying, oh, these, these are secondary villains. Man, people like Magneto and Apocalypse, they're the important ones. What are yeah, you doing? Yeah. And then we said, no, you don't understand. It's animation is not a comic book. In a comic book, Wolverine can rip apart whoever Wolverine wants to rip apart. In anima kids' animation, Wolverine can't touch anybody with his claws. He can't but touch he can destroy, uh, destroy a room full of sentinels with his claws and take his frustrations out on them. So that was one reason for the And The other major one was we wanted, we didn't want the first 13 to be good mutants versus bad mutants to set up a tone of what we want. We wanted to be good mutants uh, talking with bad mutants perhaps and watching the humans react to the fact of mutancy. We wanted the human mutant tension. And there's nothing more uh, emblematic of humans reaction to mutants than building a 40-foot monster that's coming to take them and put them in a slave camp. And that's just like an embodiment of human fear of mutancy. So they were a perfect metaphor and they were a perfect animatable uh, yeah. opponent. And so there's no way, we, we, uh, we had like, there was, that was one of those weekends where are we going to have to redo the show because mm -hmm. we found the perfect villains for the first yeah, and, and don't make this change. It set it up real nice, and just so you know, Will and I, when we were doing, we were both working on Pride of the X-Men, the Sentinels were our first choice to put into the show, 
where we got overridden that they wanted to sell lots of little characters. You know? So that's how we got Magneto and all of the, you know, the White Queen and all the rest of those guys. But we got overridden creatively. We couldn't. Oh, wow. Okay. So, like, that really has a very special place in my heart. So, um, so the question that was such a tiny, tiny thing, but I've always been curious because I've never seen it in comics. What was the design choice to get Jean Grey and Honeybill in that? And oh. also, thank you for sticking Carol Danvers in the episode. Oh, I uh, love that one. My yeah. first issue I ever read was the binary one when they set her on fire and set her off in space. Right. So, that's really important. No, the, the reason for the ponytail was more animation because we had these girls with these giant hairdos and, and to give the animators a break, <laughs> we gave her a ponytail so it's easy to animate. That's basically what it was. I was always curious about Yeah, That's a great question. Thank you guys so much. Pick up a copy of the book, see what's up. Maybe you can get a sign for me. I'm not real sure. Yeah, I got, I mean, hats too. Bring me some X-Men hats. And I want to be scored. Yeah. What X-Men? But X-Men. Oh, um, I have to the bishop. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do I, would I want to be? I think I want to be bees. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to the Mobcast Network.